Evidence and Answers. Is the church captive to the culture? Has the message become distorted by modernity? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted in Hawaii each year by Pat Zucran. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear the entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Guinness with part two of his message entitled, The Challenge of Modernity. Anyway, I I said to him somewhat lightly, terrible crisis, but you had your boys your boats. And he turned to me and suddenly got serious. He said, yes, some of those were the most evil leaders the church has ever had. But they never disbelieved or contradicted a single article of the Apostles' Creed, and your Episcopal bishops either say it with their fingers crossed or deny them openly, and they stay on as Christian leaders. And you can see the profound crisis we've got in the Western Church, and I suggest to you some of the things we're facing in the wilder extremes as well as within evangelicalism. There is a war of spirits that is very profound. Thirdly, we need to explore the heart of darkness in our culture. I was in the Congress a while back, and after the talk I gave, Congressman put up his hand and he said, if there's a flood, a small boy can put his finger in the dike and be a hero. You obviously know the little Dutch story. He said, I'm looking out in America, and what I see is a mudslide, a mudslide. Everything's interconnected. The problems. There's no silver bullet to any of them. Where do you start? There's a mudslide. What do you do? All sorts of metaphors are being used. The fraying, the eroding, the unraveling. There are all sorts of phrases being used about this. Why is it that things are once solid like belief or solid like the family? They're just melting in front of our eyes. Well, let me try and approach it in three ways. One way... Everyone knows the great Alexis de Tocqueville, the greatest foreign commentator on America, democracy in America. The second greatest, not so well known, is Lord James Bryce, Queen Victoria's ambassador to America in the early 20th century, around 1905 and so on. He has a fascinating discussion. Everyone knew at that time that Europe was much more secular and America was both more religious and much more solid. And he points out that Europe, while it gets in trouble every so often, it always has tradition as a kind of break, or social cohesion, small villages, small towns, holding people together as a kind of break. But the remarkable thing about America, it's incredibly open, incredibly free, incredibly mobile, so much so that only one thing holds it together, Bryce argued, religion. Then he says... Religion's in problem in in Europe for various historical reasons. Here it's strong. This is 1905. But he speculates. What would happen in a country so free, so open, so mobile, if religion were ever to collapse? And he says, there would be, I'm quoting again, the completest revolution of all. 
And America would disintegrate faster than many other countries that do have tradition. It's happening in our generation. And the power of faith and religion and the church and all these things is melting. But why? What is it about the modern world that makes them do that? Well, I gave you three factors earlier. But various people have tried to explore why things just melting and losing their solidity. In the Communist Manifesto, and Marx is no hero of mine, but he makes some very interesting remarks, especially when he's younger. He says a very interesting sentence you must have read if you ever looked at it in college. Talking about the Industrial Revolution, he says all that is sacred is profaned. Well, that's not very original. But then he says all that is solid is melting into air. All that is solid is melting into air. And a number of scholars have picked up on that. One of them describes our modern world as liquid. There's something about the advanced modern world, things that are solid, they just melt and then evaporate. So you have the words, but you have what he calls zombie institutions. They're not living, solid things as they used to be. What is it? Well, people have referred to the three dark R's. Think of each of these. You know these well in your life. First, the dark R of radical relativization. As Pat said, nothing is true. If you've read the postmoderns, nothing is true. Everything is relative. All is power. So Jacques Derrida says, everything is undecidable. No truth. No certainties. No claims at all. Everything is undecidable. That's very radical. That's the first one. The second one is the range of choices. Remember what I said about choosing, consumerism, etc. So many choices, everything's a whim. Nothing's very solid, nothing matters much, just your choice at the moment. And don't mortgage the future by tying yourself to something that commits you to anything for very long. You want to choose something else tomorrow. Your wife doesn't satisfy you tomorrow, a lot of other women. Your husband's a bore, a lot of other men. Your faith is no longer fulfilling. You find the Christian lifestyle... Destructive, as they're saying in San Francisco, move on, move on, move on. There's a range of choices. Then the third R, the rapidity of change. How many of the Dow Jones companies that were there at the beginning are still there today? None of them. You look in America, one minute the restaurant's flourishing, the hottest, coolest, latest thing to go to, and it's gone. Everything's changing. Your country's always under destruction. Excuse the dust. Pardon the inconvenience. Everything's changing, always. Well, put those three together, and they're like a black hole in which things that are solid just melt. Take the family over the last 50 years, and so on. Freedom is now under the same thing. Everyone's talking about different things of freedom. It means nothing to America. It's collapsing. It's unsustainable. And here's the third point of the heart of darkness then you have the most radical philosophy of all. Many people, you know, the Pope talked about, Pope Benedict, the tyranny of relativism. That's true. And Pat described it well. But I think there's a philosophy even more radical than that, and it's what's called social constructionism. The claim that everything we are, everything we do is socially constructed. And there are three simple little slogans they have. There are no givens, there are no rules, and there are no limits. Everything's socially constructed. 
Now, you can see this in the sexual revolution, particularly now, say, with transgenderism. The Stoics agreed with the Bible. As Christians and Jews, we say there is a created order. God made a world, including male and female. And now look at Google's 50-plus sexual orientations you can choose. Or the University of California, 20 choices of how you want to define your sexual orientation. Or now, look at Google and the 10 pronouns you can use. You don't want to be just he or she. Oh, come on. Things like not just MS, but MX, and so on and so on. In other words, no givens at all. Everything is socially constructed. Now, if you look at the heart of that, and so far it's only affecting the sexual revolution, that's radical enough. When it starts to affect politics, the American experiment's finished. Any notion of anything being self-evident, like freedom, human dignity, gone. They're all social constructions. That is incredibly radical. And that's what came out of the 1960s, and that's what's now rearing its ugly head in this country, and this country is leading it. And that's what we're up against. As Jews and Christians who believe the biblical worldview, there are givens. There is a moral order, and there are limits. But you can see we've switched from Plato talk to philosopher kings. Now we've got scientist kings. Now, we're in favor of science. Don't misunderstand me. We are passionate about science. Remember I said that science came out of the matrix of the Reformation. We must never be suspicious or fearful of science properly understood. We are in favor of science. But the scientist kings with their constructionist philosophy, no givens, everyone can be whatever they like. This is the new potential for a Tower of Babel on steroids, of humans being like God. Any of you look, read this stuff or looked into it, you're looking into the heart of darkness for the future. And we've got to take it on. Last point I make, make sure you have the necessary tools. When I say tools, I don't mean things like the Scriptures. They're not a tool. There are love letters from the Lord leading us home. There are authority. There are food. There are a hundred things. I don't mean that in Scriptures. We should take that for granted. Sadly, you can't today. There are certain things that go without saying, and then they're not said, and then they're forgotten. And tragically, evangelicals who used to be people of the Scriptures, the Bible-believing people, are no longer. But that's another story. But let me mention the tools we need. One I can pass over quickly because I virtually said it. We need weapons of the Spirit. The Spirit of the age... You ever pondered that word? The spirit of the age is not a metaphor. It's a reality. Pat rightly talked about demolishing strongholds. That's where supernatural warfare comes in, intercessory prayer. I hope your church is powerful in prayer. I'm amazed. European churches have prayer meetings still. Many American churches don't. Spiritual warfare, but I've said enough about that. Let me mention the second and third things which are very vital to apologetics. The second, the weapons of the Spirit, the second one is the history of ideas. History of ideas. Every good apologist needs to know the history of ideas. Nietzsche was right here. He said, to understand an idea, you need to know its 
history, its genealogy, its ancestry, its family tree. You don't judge an idea by its source. That's a genetic fallacy. But you have a shrewd idea. Is it dangerous? Is it great? Is it good? Is it wonderful? By where it comes from. Take an example. Postmodernism. A bizarre thing is happening today. Postmodernism is disappearing as a philosophy. The only postmodern people I've argued with in the last three years, five years, are young evangelicals. You know the Wall Street maxim, buy low, sell high, you make a profit. What you don't want to do is buy high, and then your stock collapses and you have to sell. You make a loss. That's what young evangelicals do who don't understand the history of ideas. Postmodernism. The first great milestone in modern postmodernism is Nietzsche. God is dead. Truth is dead. Everything's relative. You think anything coming from Nietzsche, boy, it smells bad. The second great thinker, Martin Heidegger. Great philosopher. Maybe the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, but admirer of Hitler. Card-carrying member of the Nazi party. You think, my goodness, I'll look at that with a good deal of caution. Third great milestone, the French radicals in the 1960s. Derrida, Lyotard, Foucault, and one of their number in Paris, a gentleman called Pol Pot. Think of the killing fields of Cambodia. You'd think anything coming from there, or Foucault making everything a matter of power games only, Christians would look at that with a certain amount of suspicion. No, the fourth great milestone was the 80s, and postmodernism swept the English-speaking world, especially the literature departments. And now, as I said, thank goodness, gone. I haven't been challenged by a professor or a graduate student in postmodern philosophy in the last five years. Where do I have it now? Young evangelicals. They bought in late. They're still carrying the can. Totally destructive to the Christian faith. And yet, they espouse it. Incredible. They didn't know the history of ideas. Schaefer used to put it this way. Ideas wash down in the rain. So if you understand even the, the germ of it, you realize what's coming. There are many people in America today, they've never even heard of Nietzsche. But they're almost quoting him with their views of relativism and lack of truth and power. Because his ideas have washed down in the rain and people take them on without thinking. We need to understand the history of ideas. Now, that one... Apologetics is pretty good at. If you read any of the American apologists and Biola and other places, they're pretty good at that one. But the third and the last one is the one that is almost completely missing. It's what's called cultural analysis. In other words, some of the worst ideas come from culture without any thinker being involved at all. And Christians who are well attuned to ideas tend to miss those by being too intellectual or too theoretical, too philosophical, it's not a question of either or, it's both and. Now, you're, some of you are saying, what on earth are you talking about this time of night? Let me give an example you can't fail to recognize already. At the heart of our modern world, maybe less in Hawaii than New York, because you're such a gloriously laid-back people, at the heart of our modern world is what's called fast life. You all know it. 24-7 pressure, business at the speed of light, turbo capitalism, the world of instant information, etc., etc. Now, 
without going into it more deeply, that gives us three S's, speed, stuff, and stress. My wife was at dinner when I was at town in the last presidential election with one of the campaign managers. Between, he was a Christian brother, between grace and dessert, he got 500 emails, many of which had to be answered before he went to bed. I don't know about you, I get about 100 a day. Dreadful things. Speed, stuff, and stress. We're all, you know what this fast life is. We all know what it is. Where did it come from? Which of you can tell me which philosopher is behind it? Psychologist, philosopher? None of them. I hope you're feeling blank, because the answer is it didn't come from any thinker at all. Where did it come from? The clock was invented in 1300 in Europe. The clock is said to be the most powerful invention in the West. Now, when he went to China with Matteo Ricci and people, the emperor treated it as a toy, not as technology. And it didn't have that great an impact early on. But then in the 19th century, with industrialization, it was coordinated. Think of all the little railway timetables, puffing trains all running at the same time across... Con and then in the 20th century, with digital time and atomic time, the whole world is running at that speed, and the pressure is incredible. But this did it. Africans understand it, not in a way that can analyze it, but they have a little saying. All Westerners have watches. Africans have time. When I was in the Philippines, I heard the phrase, Westerners are people with a God on their wrists. Quick, no, we don't have a God on our wrists now. We look at our cell phones, you kids. But watches, watches, watches. This watch, the clock, has done more. And it's behind that craze for relevance I was talking about earlier. We've all we've got to be up to date with the latest. You can't be on the wrong side of history. Oh, no, etc., etc. The clock has done it. It's very different from the biblical view of time. And you need to have a, a knowledge of cultural analysis. Several people in the discussions today were pointing out, say, the use of cell phones. You know, and all the cartoons and the real photographs of kids around a table, and they're not talking to each other, texting to each other. And a famous book's come out called Together Alone. And it's affected our notion of presence. At the heart of the gospel is the incarnation. God become present. Often we're with people today, we're not present at all. We're looking at our cell phones and something's coming in, a text, an email or whatever. We're not there. You can think, if you're astute, that's the world. The world isn't, don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, don't whatever. The world is cars and television and satellites and management methods and all these things. This is the world. Some of it's terrific. Some of it's very dangerous. Some of it's seductive. And we've got to have people who are shrewd in understanding the world. Otherwise, our faith floats. I'll give you an example. I remember coming over to America some years ago before I lived here. In Washington, a series on the Beatitudes. And this eminent preacher got up and he gave us the Greek and the Hebrew, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. This is terrific. But the more I listened, the more dissatisfied I was. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the Greek means this, etc. But he didn't contrast the word with the world. So take the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is a comforting invitation to those who were poor in spirit, the beaten up. It was a calculated insult 
to all the high and mighty. And here we are in this culture. We say, blessed are the MVPs, blessed are the celebrities, blessed are the Hall of Famers, blessed are the number ones. Winning is everything, number two is nothing. You go it. America's all about The gospel just goes wham and hits us between the eyes. But if we only preach the word and we don't examine the world, it just floats away as lovely little sayings. And we go out of church wonderfully, and we go back to our American world where blessed are the MVPs, etc., and we don't engage it. The whole point is, you read the Puritans, the word was preached, three quarters of the sermon was the word, and the last quarter was the world and the application in the world. And then, with the tension created in but not of, they changed the world because they took it on. And so we need to have astute history of ideas, but equally astute cultural analysis so that we know that the way we live takes on that world And then we really are salty and light-bearing, and by God's grace we change the world because we are the way of Jesus lived together. You with me? In the 11th century, and I'll finish with this, in the 11th century there was a gentleman called Peter Damien. The church in the 11th century, one of the most corrupt periods, both money and power and sex, homosexuality among other things, flourished. Peter Damien was known as the impossible man. He was later canonized St. Peter Damien. What did they mean? Some people said it with exasperation. He was impossible. Why? Other people said it with admiration. He was unmanipulable. He was unbribable. He was undeterrable. In George Orwell's later term, he was unclubbable. No comfortable conformity could seduce him. He was the impossible man, and he was Christ's man in a very corrupt age. We need followers of Jesus in America at a time when the culture has seduced the church in a hundred ways who are impossible people, unmanipulable, unbribable, undeterrable, of course, with the compassion and the grace and the mercy and the pity of our Lord, but impossible people, because we cannot be swayed. We are Christ's. You know, Pliny, the man who wrote in to the Emperor Hadrian about whether he should persecute the Jews or not, he admits quite openly, I think it was the younger one, and it may have been the older Pliny, anyway, they both wrote, one of them says, I just persecute Christians because of their obstinacy. They're just stubborn. They follow Jesus, whatever. And that's enough for me. I persecute them for their stubbornness. I wonder how many of us, we look at our brothers and sisters under ISIS, and they still name the name of Jesus, and they died for it. And we've watched them being beheaded and crucified. Shame on us in this country for our amiable accommodation and our failure to pick up our crosses and live the way of Jesus in the culture. It's not too late, but it will need impossible people. Remember how I began, uh, ended the first one. Can the church be warmed again, revived, restored? Yes, Christopher Dawson says. We say yes, but we can't answer too quickly or too lightly because then the outcome of that question depends the future of humanity.
This is apologetics. We're addressing the Word. The link between apologetics and the best of a prophetic addressing truth to power is very close. But you've got to face the world in which the Lord has called us to live. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please partner with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>